Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. Joining me in this episode is Dr. Suzanne Moser, the director of Suzanne Moser Research and Consulting, and Dr. Linda Shai, an assistant professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at Cornell University. Susie and Linda recently authored an article published in the journal Science called Transformative Climate Adaptation in the United States, Trends and Prospects. We take a deep dive in what they were trying to communicate, and we also discuss what transformative adaptation really means and what it's going to take to get us rethinking the scale of adaptation that society will truly need to address the coming impacts of climate change. This was an incredible conversation for so many reasons, and I'm excited to share it with you. Also, in a shorter bonus interview, Alice Hill returns to talk about reforms in economic and risk decision-making, which is especially relevant in light of President Biden's recent action on climate reform in the financial sector. Okay, upcoming episodes. Alex Harris, a reporter for the Miami Herald, is joining me to talk about being the lone climate re reporter in the Southeast and what it's like to cover adaptation and resilience at the local level. Also, I'll be doing an episode with the conservation group, the Sky Island Alliance, based here in Arizona. We'll learn some of the long-term impacts of climate change on the beautiful and unique Sky Island ecosystems. Yes, some great episodes are on your way. Okay, adapters, let's join Susie Moser and Linda Shy and discuss transformative adaptation. And stick around for my conversation with Alice Hill on risk in the finance sector. Hey, adapters, today I have an exciting episode. I'm talking with Dr. Linda Shy and Dr. Suzanne Moser. Susie is the director and principal researcher of Suzanne Moser Research and Consulting. Linda is an assistant professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at Cornell University. Both have been on the podcast before. Hey, Linda and Susie, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Doug, nice to be here. Great to be here. Such a treat to have you both on. I really enjoyed our previous conversations and when we've connected offline, it's a treat to know you two and your legends already in the adaptation space. And so I, I'm thrilled to have this conversation. But what we're going to be talking about is a recent article, Transformative Climate Adaptation in the United States, Trends and Prospects, that you two collaborated on. And this was in the journal Science, right? Yes, before we jump into the article, let's just get a little bit of background for people who might not be familiar with each of you. Linda, let's just start with you. What do you do at Cornell? I teach in the Department of City and Regional Planning, and I teach our Intro to Planning History and Practice course, research design classes, and then classes on climate adaptation and workshops on that issue. Okay. And Susie, what do you do with your consulting work? Yeah, so I'm an independent researcher and consultant. I've been doing that for about a dozen or so years by now. And I work primarily on adaptation, which, you know, given the trends in climate change is increasingly transformative or should be. So that's where my interest has shifted there. I've also done a lot of work on communication of climate change, and that too has gone through, if you will, a, an evolution in focus. And then I'm also really interested in how do we connect the science more effectively with practice? So I've been really interested in that interaction over time. So the two of you have actually collaborated together before. Maybe, uh, Linda, you want to take a shot at that, but how'd you guys end up collaborating on this? So I should say that Susie was on my dissertation committee, so I've known her a long time. And the backstory on this particular paper is actually rather interesting. We started writing it last year in the spring because a colleague of mine who used to work at HUD is now an academic and was, uh, was trying to work on a special issue. He organized a special issue 
for HUD's journal, which is the journal that Cityscape, to be a special issue in an election year that would educate people in federal government about the latest knowledge and developments in the urban landscape in order to you know, educate people on the issues that would be important in an election. And so he commissioned a number of articles and asked me to write one on climate. So I said, Susie, I think you'd be great to write this together. And so we drafted the paper, much of it like what ultimately got published. And the journal editor came back and said he, he did what's called the desk reject. He did not send it out for review and said, this is not going to be publishable because the uh, appointee, who's now the secretary of HUD, appointed by Trump, would never approve something like this. There was language in there critical about the fact that Trump had rolled back Obama-era climate policies, incited the, what is this, the GAO's own reports by the federal government during his own administration on some of this uh, information. But that was still going too far. And so he said it would only be publishable if you didn't talk about the federal government and only talked about state, local, or non-governmental policy. And so we said that is pretty insane and had never been done before at, at uh, HUD, where there's political intervention in the production of science and knowledge. And so we ultimately took it to science, and I'm glad that it, uh, it got published there, where ironically, it'll have a much wider audience. Susie, did you want to add any additional details to that? That's pretty crazy. Yeah, no, you know, I've been obviously publishing in this field for quite a long time. It's never happened to me before. So Linda got sort of hosed in her relatively early career of publishing with Censure. So that was an interesting experience to go through together. But as she said, you know, ultimately, Cities is a fairly narrowly focused uh, publication, a good one, but still it, it reaches only so far. And so we went rather than retreat, we just went further up. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was a long process there too. And it was great. So I loved writing with Linda and, and working through all the comments and stuff. So it's a good, good experience overall. Susie, question for you and, and Linda, weigh in for sure. But, you know, and we're going to be digging into the, the details of this article, but overall, what were you trying to accomplish with this? Well, once we decided to go for science, you know, we looked at sort of what's the moment in time when this is going to come out? It's going to come out while well, we rewrote it during the election period. And then, of course, we were still finalizing it once it was clear that President Biden was elected. And at that point, it was really, really clear we wanted to basically put adaptation and transformative, the, the need for transformative adaptation front and center in front of that administration as they're getting into it. We knew that Biden would make climate change a big policy priority. And as we describe in that article, adaptation has always been the stepchild and it shouldn't. I mean, it's it's co-equal in terms of urgency by now. We've avoided going there for so long and the needs of what needs to be addressed to really make a difference and not just be constantly cleaning up after one disaster and another is to make fundamental changes to the way we think about adaptation, how we approach it, where we send money, how we spend it, when we spend it, and so on and so forth. So we really wanted to give a framework for how to think about it, be practical, and really nudge the administration in a new direction. Linda, I'm going to, next one's for you. And let's just start with a save question. I'm going to be reading something here. So bear with me, but I think it's important to read what you guys wrote here. 
In an attempt to scale up such local efforts, Climate Justice Alternatives, a group of 65-plus frontline and movement-building organizations and networks across the country, has articulated a framework for just transition. This framework advocates a paradigm shift away from an extractive economy predicated on global plunder, the profit-driven industrial economy rooted in patriarchy and white supremacy, to a regenerative economy that focuses on redressing past harms and creating new relationships of power for future through reparations. Okay, so I mean, you, you're noting this. I don't necessarily, I'm not sure if you're completely recommending this, but as I read that, I couldn't quite visualize what that world looks like. And so can you kind of elaborate? That sort of like transition. That's a great question. And actually, they have visualized it. And that's not quite exactly what you mean. But there is a great visual for just transitions. So if you Google the Climate Justice Alliance and just transitions, I think, framework, there's a quite elegant black and white diagram that shows the circular vicious nature of the current extractive economy where you're taking resources and people off the land it goes into corporate profits and then you know people and communities become more impoverished and what they're trying to say is they want to pull down the resources and the power and the money from those global networks of capital flows and resource flows back into communities where people through democratic and community governance and ties to the land would be able to manage and and have resilient communities So what does that really, really look like? I think that's actually part of the kind of question that we're articulating in this paper. As you know, my research is somewhat wide ranging, and it became quite obvious to me in these different spheres where I was working that the different uh, sectors of society were really speaking completely different languages and using very different ways of knowing, different scales of knowledge and acting in different directions. So on the environmental justice and the community-based movements landscape, you see language like this and efforts to push for grassroots mobilization, to draw down power, to be to have a politics of resistance, as well as of transformation, but oftentimes at the local scale. So you'll find case study examples where perhaps in a particular community or a particular region, there will be efforts to build coalitions. And you might find bipartisan support where people are actually all working together to support like healthcare policy jobs, as well as environmental, you know, safe communities, safe drinking water, because at the end of the day, everybody wants similar things. It's not a necessarily divisive issue. But then the challenge is how do you scale those up because they are operating in completely divorced domains from the spheres of policy, the spheres of capital, the spheres of infrastructure. So when you, I think what you're asking is a very real question. How would you take that language and deal with things like FEMA's flood insurance policy and programs? If you were going to draw down power, what would you do with flood insurance and risk and people who are currently not living in places that are safe, would you make a seawall for them and draw down capital uh, and tax corporations and build a seawall? Would you say empowerment means that community has to, uh, is able to stay or would they actually go? It doesn't necessarily answer a lot of the very live and very complicated and difficult policy questions that we have. And so I put that out there as a normatively something that, you know, I think offers a lot of appeal and power 
But the challenge is how do you relate that to these other technical and policy domains that will exist even if you overthrow patriarchy, supremacy, racism, and all of these things, those kinds of technical dilemmas of how do we organize ourselves spatially, politically uh, as processes, how does that happen? Uh, can I add something? Definitely, definitely. <laughs> I was going to set you up, Susie. And I, okay. I just want to add that, you know, I'm obviously going to play devil's advocate for some of these things. And when I read that, I think, okay, you're, you're basically asking changing the very DNA of the United States. And I think that's partly what you're you're suggesting. But please, Susie, go, I'll just add on to that. Well, one of the things that you, you had in your question, which is that you said you have a hard time imagining what this looks like. And of course, you know, every transition is messy, right? That That is the, no one can exactly tell you what are the steps, you know, what are the levers you have to push at any one point, you know, how exactly is going to look. We're talking about a wicked problem and transformation of a wicked system is just, it is simply messy. But the imagination piece, I'm really, I, I really want to grab that for a minute. We are so limited in imagining that we could live in a whole different way on this planet, in this country, on this planet. I'll make it more global even than the United States. You know, it, the, the idea of thinking everything has to pretty much stay the way it is under changing condition, that is how we have thought about adaptation for the last 30, 40 years. That's maintaining what is possibly in some instances when things weren't so great, maybe even making things a little bit better. Like if you daily drove through potholes, well, then let's, you know, fill those potholes so I have a smooth ride to work. That's sort of as far as our imagination has gone. But what if we could completely reimagine how we get around, how we live, how we interact with nature, how we interact with each other. My God, it's not all I'm better than you and you have more power and I have less power. What if we could have a very different form of relationship? A lot of my work actually around adaptation success has been focused on trying to get people to imagine, to envision different futures. And then to see, can we get there from here? What would it take? And, and make those action steps robust in the face of a more volatile climate. So just, you know, want to put that out there that I think we are so limited in our imagination that we could really live a better and different life on this planet. And I guess I could imagine this different kind of world we could live in. To me, the hard part to imagine is the journey there. I guess, you know, sort of that to me is the harder thing to kind of get my head around. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why, that's why we basically put this little theoretical framework out there, which comes out of sort of, you know, collective social impact thinking is what are the, the fundamental things that keep things the way they are. Right. And the most Im important pieces there we outlined were on the surface level, the policy, the, the resource flows and the practices. And that, of course, how we, what kind of policies are there and what kind of practices, who gets the money, that is really much determined by who gets to make the decisions. What are the relationships between those? So putting forward that idea of, you know, really thinking about who is around the table and reconfiguring those relationships and the power dynamics between them, that's where it gets really political and really hard, right? And where does, you know, where does the willingness come from to ever make a change in that? Well, that requires a different way of looking at the world, a different mindset. And that's why, 
you know, at the at the root of it all is our way of thinking about our relationships and both to each other and to the natural environment. And so I think that's that is a where I would constantly point you back to when you can't imagine how we do it. We start with different dialogues. You know, we start with putting different people around the table. Who is willing to do that? Well, the people who are you would consider leaders and people who actually live at, at the margins of society in many ways. Innovation typically happens not in the mainstream, it happens on the margins. And so the way to get to transformative change is to actually cultivate what are those innovations, those new things, those, those new people showing up from the margins and bring them into the conversation. When you have a new conversation, you can have different ways of thinking. You can have different way, different outcomes in terms of policy and resource flows. Linda, in the article, you talk about the private sector and its role in the adaptation space and some maybe of the innovative things that they've been doing. But you guys talk about that it's not really designed to think about justice issues associated with adaptation. What do you mean? The private sector, and by that I mean, we mean the fire industry, uh, finance, insurance, real estate, as well as the professional associations like engineers, architects, lawyers, they have been very cognizant of climate impacts because it directly affects their profitability and their financial liability as well as their legal liability. And so while the federal government has been delaying or retreating or giving mixed messages on its approach to climate change, they have been much more agile over the last four years in internalizing climate impacts. There is a global network of, that Bloomberg began that looks at how climate change is going to impact the assets that they have, as well as disclose where they are invested in um, climate-causing Industries. So you have these kinds of concerns where, like, bond rating agencies are beginning to account for climate impacts, including for municipalities, which is going to impact the cost of lending for municipalities. And then other banks, especially if they're more local, they will begin to assess their climate risks for their mortgage uh, holdings and begin to offload that into other bigger banks. Same thing with real estate, um, with insurance, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have like these industrial location firms, whether that's Jupiter or um, Climate Oases or other things where they're scouting where are the places that are going to be relatively safer for investment if the coastal places or the wildfire places or wherever are going to be more at risk. And so you begin to see how while climate change poses a risk, to these sectors, it also presents new opportunities for selling for what is it selling high and buying low, and then just repeating this whole process all over again. Right? Is it a form of adaptation if asset holders, your Zillows of the world, were to sell off their Miami Beach assets at some point to some un- unknowledgeable buyer in Latin America, and then they were to buy instead a bunch of property in Rochester or Albany? thinking that in some years, that'll be the next hot market when people begin to think about other places as being at risk. And then those folks that are displaced out of those communities, they have no, you know, they are going to be gentrified out of those communities. And where are they going to go into places that are going to be considered less resilient, whether from climate or economically speaking, uh, other places or in the places that become left by the wealthy or the more upwardly mobile 
places that are going to be more at risk or less able to invest in resilience measures, those might become places that uh, people who are lower income, who can't afford housing elsewhere, end up going. And then on the professional side, you know, there's engineers, there's lawyers, these kinds of uh, designers, they're held legally liable for the things that they build in the environment. So if you were to build a bridge or you build a building, and then in the lifespan, the, the, the lifespan of that asset, it becomes destroyed by an event, it buckles under the heat, it collapses under a landslide. People could sue them for saying the climate change and climate science have been well known. You should have known that that was going to happen, yet you did not account for it in your standards. Therefore, you have failed your legal and ethical duties as a professional in delivering this. And so firms and individuals could be held liable. And so these place, these folks are trying to take measures to build, to transform some of the codes, which could have really systemic impacts. So even if the federal government is not going to lead the code change, when a global, the World Federation of Engineers or other societies begin to change those practices, that's going to help, I think, pave the way towards federal government taking a bigger step. But again, all of these measures are trying to reduce risk and liability from certain perspectives, not necessarily answering the question of how do we create resilient, safe, equitable communities. Susie, I'm going to go back to you. And when I'm reading this, and I used to work for the federal government in D.C., and when you hear the word transformative, you might get some eye rolls. And this goes back to our earlier conversation about process. And so how do we get past that? Because you know, people in power, people who are doing these things, and I think the people involved with adaptation, sometimes they don't even know that they're involved with it, need to get on board with this. But when you're talking about these big subjects, how do you kind of get some traction on it? If you're talking Washington and most state houses, you know, the issue is politics and staying in power and getting elected. And there are forces that both can help that and hinder that. One of the ones that I think is really problematic is, you know, that we have so much money in our election system. And, you know, that just doesn't give everyone an equal voice, right? And makes certain voices a lot more prominent in Washington to shape what those policy agendas are. That's on that's the the place that maybe the door where that is not open. At the same time, there are, as Linda just laid out with what's happening in the private sector, enormous shifts. And and they're they're actually, I think, rapidly accelerating. I was just on a conversation in a conversation this morning where I learned about two very large U.S. corporations that are not just trying to become sustainable or net zero carbon emissions or whatever, those typical goals that we've heard, you know, of being less bad. No, they're actually moving into the space that is, you know, resonant of what Linda earlier laid out with a regenerative form of economy. Now, if that's you know coming from some really large U.S. corporations, you bet you they have their lobbyists in in Washington as well, and they too have a way to be heard. So it's you know those are the kinds of ways in which the the chess pieces change at the federal policy level, or you know who gets heard in Congress, who gets heard in in the White House. So those are important changes, and I think what's you know, beyond that important is that we have social movements that push from the bottom up in a very different way. You know, Biden didn't become the climate advocate that he is currently or looking to be by on his own. He became that because a lot of the other candidates who were much stronger on it pushed, 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 
leading to conversations that's that reshaped the climate uh, policy agenda for this administration in a really significant way. I'm surprised pretty much daily still about that. <laughs> so, you know, there is there is bottom up pressure to do something. And and we know in this country, we have a history of social movements really fundamentally changing some of the policy directions. And then you have, you know, corporate powers that are also beginning to change. So maybe we're finally gearing up to, you know, getting the powers aligned. I mean, when I hear, you know, people moving into climate oases, I mean, that's still profit driven, right? That's still the old paradigms. So, you know, I, I also say, let's not throw our critical thinking off, off, off to the side, but I think there is movement, and that's one way you know that we're in a transition, that there's significant movement. And now it's really uh, the need to, to keep very vigilant and nudging that movement in a direction that is good for a lot more people and for the planet, because it's the only one we got. Okay, Linda, this is a question for you. And you briefly talked about sort of democratic systems, but does transformative adaptation have to go hand in hand with democratic systems of government. And I was trying to think of countries and I looked at, I guess, some place like Singapore as, as a model. And I don't know enough about Singapore, but it's pretty successful, you know, in regards to economic, but on the old system, are those kind of countries better prepared to deal with because as climate change really starts ramping up, adapting is going to become more urgent. Is democracy the, the best pathway? Uh, <laughs> <question> there. <laughs> this reminds me of my college thesis and i i think i regressed like a hundred variables between regime type and environmental outcome i can't say it was the best statistical study but there was oh, interesting there was zero correlation i think because there's there are so many different factors that come into the, uh, those kinds of questions yeah, that's the question. I, that's that's a huge dilemma for the 21st century, right? The whole question of China right now, and China is betting on the fact that the United States and the the democratic experiment is a failure because authoritarian regimes can move much faster. And so these debates now that we have of climate change being super urgent, it's a crisis. You have to have large scale action. You can label that as transformative, and some definitions of transformation are about the scale of the change, the kind of geographic scope, as well as the nature of the change being a very major change from pre-existing technologies. You're going to shift on it to a whole other type of technology. Of course, when you don't have to engage all your stakeholders in democratic deliberation to come to a consensus or at least a majority decision, you can push through things much, much faster. And so in some respects, that there are these debates as to can a democratic deliberative approach actually deliver the kinds of outcomes that we're trying to seek? And China's bet would be that no, it cannot. And that's why the Chinese model might be more successful. I think that you have to... Um, in, in other ways, I think that the regime type is less 
less different than perhaps one might expect. So the United States is a democracy. China is an authoritarian regime. Singapore putatively is a democracy, but only one party has ever won in the last however many decades. It's, it's considered a benign, shall we say, dictatorship. But you look at Singapore's economy, it exists as a city-state, and it draws on the financial and other resource and labor capital all over the world in order to funnel that capital into itself. And because it is such a small territory and operates as a nation state, it's able to exclude all others who would seek to come into its boundaries, you know, including the places where it's drawing capital and resources and water and other things in order to benefit from the social, economic welfare that is available there. It can exclude the same way that you know, the U.S. can exclude Mexicans at the border. And so you are able to accumulate a lot of wealth and distribute it among a very small demographic. So it's a it's a dictatorship. It it can it can do that. Is it that different from what the United States does through its global domination and supply chains? It's you know the history of what we've done with coups in Latin America to other places. It's not necessarily that uh, democracies are behaving all that much better, environmentally speaking, in some ways. Um, and so I think that the regime type is both very important. And also, not necessarily the the end all and be all of of these debates. Okay, and not I'm not proposing necessarily, but you know, I'm from Florida. And I go down to Florida, and I see all the the cranes that are in Miami and such. And it's just I'm like a rational government would not allow this to be happening, knowing what we know. And you know, where do we go from here? And I guess that's partly what you you want to accomplish with this paper. But obviously, very frustrating. How is that not? How is that not rational? It is totally rational. Right. If the money is the currency that makes a, you know, makes your decision, what Miami does is completely rational. It's just completely irrational if you take other currency into account, like, you know, being able to live there, having the water, not being overheated, like not drowning underwater. Right. Those are the other considerations. In that case, the, the decisions are much more questionable. So I've got you, Susie. I, I want to do another <laughs> shorter quote here. And unsurprisingly, there's limited knowledge still about basic aspects of societal adaptation, including how to support contentious communication and engagement about transformative adaptation. I'm very interested in communication and adaptation. What did you mean by that? Well, I'll give you one you know, specific example. Right now, there are a number of coastal communities that are waking up to uh oh, <laughs> maybe we won't have the resources to defend ourselves for the next three thousand years against rising sea levels of you know several several feet, probably up to you know six feet or more over that time frame. You know, at some point, it's going to be very difficult for people to stay in that place to afford the defensive approach to adaptation, if you will, and they have to think about retreat. And for some communities. That is not 100 years out, like, you know, giving them sort of the luxury of thinking, oh, that that's not in my election cycle. That's not in my term of office. That is not in my career even. No, for some communities, that point of where their septic systems fail, where the, the water infrastructure doesn't work anymore, where the roads start to crumble is five years or 10 years out. That's Nothing. That's nothing in terms of getting people on board to figure out what to do, right? I mean, when that starts to happen, people start, if, if there isn't some comprehensive approach, individual homeowners will simply 
try to sell their house. If they can't sell it anymore, they will abandon their houses. So that leaves a public legacy of how to, what do you do with that abandoned house now in the floodplain? That will mean that the tax base is going down for communities. You have to have conversations of what are we doing? Are we just, you know, upping and leaving or are we restoring that place? That also costs some money. So that whole notion of how do we deal with the concrete ways in which communities' waterfronts will have to move back and people have to find new places to live. That requires conversation at the local level and it requires conversation at wherever they're going, right, at the receiving end of this. And how to have those conversations when people's major asset, major investments, major savings is, you know, basically being lost without any compensation. When they lose their land, their homeland, which is also their history, where their family has always vacationed, where their family has lived for decades. You know, think about indigenous peoples who have really deep, deep ties culturally to the piece of land. I mean, when you take all that into account, you can see that that very quickly devolves into a very contentious conversation. Like, why are you not doing anything for us? You know, and, and then the community leaders basically being confronted with, well, what do you want us to do? We don't have the money to do it and we don't get any help, right? This goes back to Army Corps of Engineer cost-benefit analyses and there's simply not being enough money to bail everybody out. So what do you do? How do you have these conversations? I think in communication of climate change, we have tried to talk about science and about impacts, what might happen 100 years from now. And, you know, trying to get people mobilized to take action. But this is existential stuff. I don't think we have that figured out at all. There's just a handful of papers now beginning to emerge that are, you know, having some suggestions of how do you start sitting down, having dialogue, not messages, not messaging the retreat to people, but essentially engaging them in a grief process, in venting whatever their emotions, and then helping them in very concrete ways and compassionately to remake their lives somewhere else. And, you know, that conversation too is deeply overlain or undergirded, if you, however you want to put it, with a history of basically helping only the, the rich and the white in this country and not giving equal attention to and resources to the people who we've redlined out of neighborhoods whose, you know, neighborhoods we've basically let abandon you know abandon them for a long time and let them decay as it is so basically in those conversations we have to do the deep reckoning that Linda and I talk about in this paper to get to a transformative alternative to what we're what we have always done this is where we have to really figure out what do we what's worth keeping what's worth investing in what needs to change Linda, I want to stick with this communication topic. And Susie, you, you talk about that this conversation level, and especially with people, the word it's this immediate threat that they're dealing with. But what about more broadly? And I think, you know, the, the Biden administration, we're all sort of seeing that maybe adaptation resilience isn't prioritized, but like, is there value in a national adaptation communication strategy, creating a narrative around this so that we in the adaptation space, I still think we do not such a great job. We're still kind of have some identity issues, but. Linda, any thoughts on sort of like that broader need for a a national strategy? Does it have to be limited to the communication component or are you asking about the national adaptation strategy in general? 
I guess I'm just talking about the communication side here, but if you want to throw in, I, to me, it's just the communication side, especially like if we're trying to get closer to what you guys are proposing, a lot of it is just going to be handholding and communicating with the public and really explaining these things in ways that so they kind of get behind what you're trying to accomplish here. I do think that communications is an important piece and the tone setting and the explanation really is quite key as we've seen over the last four years. Um, and so I'm not the communications expert, so I'm, I don't know that I would speak to that aspect of it. But at the national level, I think that there's so much more that could be done that is not that is beyond the communications part, right? So there's a an element of talking, but then there's an element of doing and also of convening or of leadership. And you could, I suppose, put that all together in a broader process of which communication is a part. So for instance, you know, what Susie is talking about, the kinds of coastal change, where are people going to go when these communities are changing? And it's not just about the coasts, it's about floodplains. It's about wildfire areas. What about the West where it's uh, the drought is increasing or the heat of the, of the inland valley in California or of the Southwest is so intense. Are people going to want to be to, to still live there? And there's already other compounding issues of housing affordability that's in the latest census, you know, reducing California's population growth. And so at the federal level, I think, you know, we've done so many of these national climate assessments that are about what kind of climate change is going to happen, but they don't tend to be cumulative across multiple hazards. And they don't usually tend to translate between these things across cascading sectors. So when the temperature changes and then the knock on water impacts and then the energy impacts, what's that going to mean for the actual utility that's trying to operate there and the availability of water that's going to be in a certain place, right? So why should the private sector be driving this kind of more usually a narrower scale of what's going to be a profitable place, why doesn't the public sector control the narrative as well as the analysis to say, where are places that are going to be more and more difficult to live in and for growth to, to, to you know, for growth to happen? Where are places where we want to grow as a country? You know, it doesn't, so I think that that's one element where it is a territorial scale planning strategy and it's not necessarily just about maybe people should be, instead of San Francisco or New Orleans, they should all be living in Chicago and Buffalo. It's also a question of just how urbanized should we be? Because I think that there's also, this is a long, you know, Susie's asking, what about a different way to live? This different way to live is also about the whole broader urban dilemma, this urban question that planners have been grappling with for you know, over a century of how urban should we be? Are big cities uh, sustainable or not? But I don't know that there's any model, you know, there's Tokyo and others, 30 million and up. But whenever you have so many people living in one place, you're always going to have these questions of living beyond the ecological footprint of that particular city. You're going to have affordable housing questions, you'll have pollution questions, this kind of technological ideal where we can all live in this highly urbanized and highly concentrated type of development and have it sustained through technological uh, changes or even through dialogue and discourse, it's very challenging. So I think that the climate dilemma is more broadly pushing us to think about a different relationship to the land, which includes the spatial arrangement of where people should live. Should we live in smaller cities? Should we have more people living in 
the Midwest or in rural communities that currently have been so abandoned. And the abandonment has contributed to this kind of polarization and the kinds of inequality that we currently see. You talk about the Green New Deal in in this article, and I, to be honest, you know, I, I think maybe a little bit of criticism, but obviously there's the the potential of it too, and maybe you guys could elaborate on that. But I, I was thinking like that's probably the closest thing to like a vehicle that you could latch what you're suggesting in this article onto. And maybe I just read that wrong, but what are the opportunities there with Green New Deal? And you know, you know, it's obviously become a political hot potato. Quite honestly, I, you know, I don't think it's ambitious enough, but it's still great. They put a lot of different things in there that I think are that never been talked about before. But Susie, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And and I want to actually tie it to your question about the communication. Okay, great. <laughs> and in fact, I want to tie it to another question you asked earlier, which is the question of leadership. How do we envision moving in this completely different way. I mean, what what we see now, the the problems we have, you you can call it externalities of very narrow ways of thinking about things, or you can call it, you know, simply the the unintended consequences of living in siloed and working in siloed ways of doing governance or, or industry, whatever. But really, we are just living with the symptoms of a very broken approach, right? And what the Green New Deal does is it actually ties these things together. So in that way, forget the specifics of it, but but in in that particular way, it is maybe the, the, I don't know, the first in a very long time approach that I have seen that begins to connect the dots, that how we exploit nature is directly and causally and fundamentally, philosophically, ideologically related to how we exploit each other and you know, across sectors, across the globe, and so on and so forth. So to me, this is a really, really important shift in thinking about it. And that's get gets pushed by initially by, you know, an elder and a youngster. I love that, right? You get, I mean, you basically have have people across the generation say, you know, we got to stop doing the stupid thing that we've been doing. And and they take leadership. And I think if we started to actually bring you know, the true elders in our society together with the the people who have all this energy behind Fridays for Future or, you know, stri- striking for the climate or you, you name it, you begin to see both wisdom and passion come together to frame up a whole new conversation. And to me, this is one that we're, you know, seeing pieces of, not, not the whole new package, but we're seeing pieces of that being reflected in how Biden now communicates about climate change. It is much more inclusive. It is much more conciliatory, if you will. It's not the combative me first. It's just for us. And, you know, after me, the the floods, right? It, it is far more looking at people's needs. They need good work. They need meaningful work. They need a livelihood. They need to live in safe places and they need to be supported by the, you know, the infrastructure that enables it. So, you know, it's beginning to tie the things together. Those are all huge changes. And I think one of the first tasks of true leadership in this transformation space is to name and to frame the depth, the scale, and then the outline, if you will, of this necessary change that we're now in and helping people have more of that imagination that, that we talked about earlier. And yes, that change is hard. That's going to be, you know, the ending for some people of something that they held sacred for a long time 
and it's it's creating new opportunities. But, you know, when you're losing something, that's hard to grasp onto. So there needs to be a lot of empathy in what we're doing and, and, and really helping people then grapple with, you know, yes, this is change. This is uncertainty. We don't know everything, but come and put your shoulder to the wheel of the common good. That requires a level of communication and leadership that you want to see on a persistent basis. It's not just one message blip and then you go on to the next one. That framing needs to be the framing for, I don't know, the next decade or two, you know, to make that big shift. So it's not the only thing in terms of communication, but that to me is where it needs to start and you need committed leadership to do that. Linda, related to this framing, and especially within the article, you're talking about issues of climate justice, the, th- the things that we need to start thinking about now. Is there a risk of politicizing the broader adaptation sector by incorporating a left to center ideological frame? And I say that because it's a crazy world we live in that you that has to become a political issue, but it's reality. And right now, adaptation is lumbered along, not necessarily being politicized as the, the emission side has, but is, is that a real risk? I think that it's the the words are really important. And even with the Green New Deal these days, I don't hear people talking about it as the Green New Deal. I hear that agenda being enacted through policies and acts that are labeled under other approaches. So that's I think, you know, that's that's in a way why resilience is as big as it is versus adaptation, because it started under Bush when climate wasn't real. And so resilience is good for everybody. And climate adaptation is unnecessary if there's not climate change. But I think that to some extent, it's not helpful to base this agenda only around an urban grassroots racial minority type of solidarity. And I think that one of the exciting things about the Climate Justice Alliance is that so many members of the of that alliance are actually based in rural areas and predominantly white areas as well. Because so much of the kinds of communities that are hurting from climate change are and from you know past environmental just injustices are also based in rural areas in suburban areas, in white communities. And so we don't really have any kind of environmental justice or a climate approach or a kind of democratic left platform for the people who are in those demographics. And and so I think there's a lot to be said for the ability for us to use different language to actually bring solidarity across these groups, which is what Climate Justice Alliance and others are trying to do. When you focus on things like safe drinking water, land rights, you know, like the the farmers who are in rural areas who would love to be able to grow uh, carbon mitigating crops or who would be able to want to sustain their communities or who are fighting major polluters and extractors from minerals to other chemical industries. I think that they have, we have a lot to say where we're thinking about those in, in conjunction with one another and a kind of climate justice for the on the mitigation side that says okay let's park all our cart like our solar panels on arable farmland in farm communities or let's dump all of our solar waste or our flood waters back onto rural communities and divert it onto uh, rural areas so that we can keep cities safe that's not really a climate justice that accounts for all the different groups that inhabit our communities. And so I think that there's a real need to bring people together 
and that the, in terms of the process and the communication, it's not even that we need to transform by looking for something totally new. There are lots of groups that have been engaging in these kinds of dialogue and whose communities have been practicing the very things that we are advocating for in this paper and, and others. It's more that they have to be uplifted and scaled up as opposed to some of the other types of dialogue and communications that have been in the past. Susie, I think of you know us as all part of this emerging adaptation professional class. And it, do you think what so far, it's how it's matured. It's still a relatively new area. Do you think they're up to the task of pushing this idea of transformative adaptation? Are that because we're going to need ambassadors for it? We're going to need practitioners of it. Do you just your own assessment? Because you you go to the conferences and you you attend, and you know there's a, associations and such. Are they the ones to really to carry it to that next level? That's an interesting question. You know, I've been observing the adaptation field since pretty much the early 1990s when there was a like literally a handful of us in this country doing adaptation. And now, you know, when I go to a national adaptation forum, been to every one of them, every time there is, you know, about 80% of the participants are new. In other words, they're first comers. It's a, it's a still a rapidly expanding field. And if you really think about it, eventually adaptation is going to infuse every single profession because everyone will have to make adjustments in their works to the changing environment. What I have seen over this is that in a lot of the adaptation profession, people who call themselves that, predominantly white, often in privileged positions and, and communities, they have shaped sort of the early thinking. It was very much science-driven. And, you know, that is really rapidly changing over the last few years and just a handful of years to be much more diverse. And the conversation is shifting. One of the professional societies that I um, had a privilege of co-founding, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, and you've, you've talked with them on this show, they have, you know, in recent years, really, really begun to change the conversation and made the, the justice, equity, inclusion, diversity piece of the, the work, a central piece of adaptation professional a code of ethics, if you will. We have to have fluency in, in having these conversations. In the same way, I think we're beginning to have more of a conversation about transformative adaptation. And simply because climate change is pushing the conversation on us. So I think it's emerging. Are we ready for it? None of us will be ready for what's coming. Let's just be honest. Every single one of us is going to be a step behind what's going to be asked of us to manage or to, to navigate, if you will, this transformative change. Humanity hasn't ever had to go through this. So the, the best we can hope for, I think, is that we learn rapidly, we're well-networked, we learn quickly from each other, and we have, again and again, communities of practice in which we can exchange and, and do this work together as opposed to against each other or in competition. I think we really need to shift our ways of thinking. I know there is really interesting work going on in thinking about fundamental changes in governance, local governance. So this work is emerging and people are reinventing it. We need to get much better at connecting the, the scientific work on transformation with the practice of transformation, connect what's happening in the justice community with what's happening in the rest of the more professionalized, privileged places in which adaptation happens so that we really learn from each other more rapidly. I think that's the, the, 
the most important thing that we accelerate learning. Linda, I want you to take a crack at this, but from the perspective of your 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 professor and academic, you're working with students. And what do you see? Do you feel like you're part of this adaptation professional class? And what about your students and the diversity of your students? Are they do you, I know it's urban planning, but do you, do they feel like they're part of this climate adaptation space or they're like, no, I'm an urban planner and I'm going to work on climate issues. How's it like working for you on that? Oh, Doug. (laughs) (laughs) This is raising so many existential questions about university life, about planning academia generally. (laughs) Sorry. Well, to the, the issue of diversity, it's, it's a difficult one. I think there are some areas where, oh, I don't know how to answer this question. I think for the issue of diversity is a very difficult nut to crack. Planning planners in general are about 80% white, and most serve in communities that are uh, significantly more diverse. But our students, you know, there are some schools like in California, I would imagine maybe in Florida or Texas where their regional schools are able to draw the local populations and they get a lot more diversity, the in-state tuitions are much lower. But especially if you're getting to places like Cornell, where the tuitions are much higher, it's very hard to attract diversity because there's also not that many students who necessarily perceive that these are spheres that they are able to go into. So I'm hopeful that all of the new activism that the grassroots communities have launched are showing to our young people that the issues that you're concerned about, they have a, a path forward for you to, to engage with professionally speaking. Now, whether any of them are, are going to find their way into planning, into technical spheres, as opposed to ones that are significantly profitable, I find that many of our marginalized students are actually very interested in careers that are high profit rather than like a altruistic of public sector, because it's so important, materially speaking, to uplift their whole families from poverty. And so I think that we have to be able to make these career paths be, first of all, seen as ones that a diverse range of students are interested in and able to see their futures in, but then also make these actually viable, financially speaking, for, for many people. As to the broader question of, like, are we educating them, pedagogically speaking, for these kinds of interrelated, holistic, cross-cutting issues, I think very few schools really do very well at that. I think that many schools increasingly are siloing themselves into particular financial models where the schools are trying to keep profits internally and they have to maintain profitability to demonstrate to universities, which makes cross-cutting programs really quite challenging. I think of ASU, now Columbia, and some other places are, are trying to break that model. But in many places, it's very challenging to actually teach students to be cross-cutting across multiple areas. I think more people are, are learning a wide diversity of topics, but not necessarily the skills to say, how do I solve these problems by coming at it from multiple multiple spheres? How do I engage with people who are in completely different schools and departments in order for us to collectively solve this problem together? Rather, I see a lot of siloing where even for us, like the real estate program is half in planning, half in business. And for them, 
it's like the real estate people don't like the planners and the planners mm-hmm. think the real estate people are sellouts, right? And then the comp side people, they attract so many, but all they do is data and they don't care about people. So there's a lot more division than actual collegiality, I find. Um, and I think that's a dynamic that we really need to tackle because as Susie says, it's not about me offering a single class that's going to be climate and making sure every student takes it. It's that every school needs to be able to embed climate thinking within them and also to see the value of all these different knowledge disciplines in contributing to what their own sector has to offer. Well, I, you know, I just did an episode with Worcester Polytechnic Institute and they created a master's program adaptation. You know, there's not a lot of those in the United States at the moment and they, they, they're really trying to go cross discipline. So their, their first class will be this fall. It'll be interesting to see how that kind of unfolds. But to me, that's an encouraging sign. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about the article. I, before, you know, before we go, I ask all of you guys know this. I ask all my guests, if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, maybe it's related to this, but Susie, let's start with you. Yeah. Happy to. So I guess there are two, I'm going to propose two people. One is a man named Glenn Page, who works in, from Portland, Maine and looks at the Gulf of Maine and really thinks very hard about how to transform that entire system. And I I really think you should talk to him. Another person I would highly recommend, she's not in the US, but I think it really speaks to this question of our relationships with each other and how do we decolonize our ways of thinking and, and interacting with each other is Melanie Goodchild. She is at the Turtle Island Institute uh, in and the Waterloo Institute for Social Innovation and Resilience. And I really think you should talk to both of them. Very interesting. Linda. I was going to suggest Ama Ruth Francis. She's a climate law fellow at Columbia. And I heard her give a talk at uh, Temple University. And she's just incredible. She speaks about climate displacement and migration and refugees. She's from the Caribbean. And I think she brings both an international and domestic perspective. She's a lawyer by training. And so I think that there's a lot of legal perspectives as well as historical humanitarian issues that she brings. So she would be great. Or you could think about Zach Taylor, who is, I think he's now a postdoc. He was at Leuven. I'm not sure where he is now, but he does a lot of research on insurance and the financialization of insurance from a quite critical perspective. And I think he would be very interesting to hear from as well. Awesome recommendations. Well, Susie and Linda, always a pleasure. Great to have you on again on the podcast. What you're doing here is really important. Maybe we even check in six months, nine months from now and talk about, you know, hopefully it's going to start some conversations, this article that you've written. Very important. Really appreciate what you're doing and thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having us, Doug. Thank you. Take care. Hey Adapters, welcome back. Today we have an exciting show for you. Joining me is Judge Alice Hill. Alice is the David Rubenstein Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Alice's work at CFR focuses on the risks, consequences, and responses associated with climate change. Alice previously served as Special Assistant to President Obama and Senior Director for Resilience Policy on the National Security Council staff, where she led the development of a national policy to build resilience to catastrophic risks. Today, Alice will walk us through a recent article she co-authored on risk and how we use financial models. Hey, Alice, welcome back to the show. Oh, so glad to be back with you. You are a recurring character now here on Simpatico, (laughs) (laughs) and we appreciate it, and you're always bringing some really fascinating work that you're doing, because you're always writing articles, and I have an open invitation for you to come share what you're doing there. And so we're going to be talking about risk, and maybe you could tell us 
I guess, the, even the title of the article, where it was published, and, and let's jump in. Sure. Well, I co-authored this article with an economist, an engineer, and the focus is on the fact that risk isn't properly evaluated when it comes to some of the choices we make in building really big infrastructure projects. So David Espinoza is an engineer. He travels all over the world building dams, huge structures that are designed to last, hopefully, for at least 50 to 100 years. And in the case of the Romans, could last 1,000, 2,000 years. But currently, our cost-benefit analysis, that's the analysis that you do up front. Do we want to include this extra measure or not? doesn't reflect the growing risks from climate change, that those impacts, climate-driven impacts, droughts, floods, wildfires are going to slam into those structures. And if we don't build resilience from the beginning, we're going to have to retrofit at a much greater cost. So this article focuses on the fact that time isn't the only solution here in a judging what the risk is. Risk is what we need to focus on to make better decisions. Well, I had to dust off my own sort of background and I don't have background in economics, but, you know, discounted rates and all that and things in the future will have less value today. And making that argument that the, the threats of climate change should just sort of blow up how we think about funding. And that, that's what you were getting at in this article here is we're just not valuing, I guess, the future enough. Yes, essentially we discount the future so that we really value money more dearly now than we do for the benefits that will be given to us in the future, which means we shortchange generations. So let's say we're a local community and trying to figure out, make it simple, we're going to, whether we're going to build a new bridge or not. And it would cost us, we know that For some of these retrofits, it might, or these inclusion of resiliency in the design, so it's higher up, it's sturdier in the face of future flooding, might increase the cost. Could be 20%, could be more than that, could be less than that. But we don't value that incremental gain in the longevity and the resilience of the structure as we determine whether we will pay for that. And what happens is that when we use our current cost-benefit analysis, that extra 20 30% or 5% gets zeroed out. It just isn't viewed today as valuable enough to spend those dollars right now. But if you step back and know that in a few decades' time, we'll have even more extreme precipitation what emergency managers call rain bombs, where just massive amount of water fall, as did in Houston during Harvey, four feet of rain, that we need to design and build these structures in a way that makes them survive for future generations so that we're not spending on really expensive stuff, a lot of money that's doomed to fail. And that comes down often to the cost-benefit analysis. Okay, so different groups are using cost benefits. So you might have private investors or you might have public investors. And is there, do do you sense that maybe there's one or the other that's more open to sort of really changing the model and how we value these things? Or do they all kind of work together? Well, there are different discount rates. For example, the World Bank has 12%. Our own federal government has 7%. But 
Because this is a financial transaction, and there are different ways of calculating the cost-benefit analysis as well, typically the discount rates are pretty high unless you've had some sophisticated analysis that makes it clear to people that our old adage that time is money is not really true. Risk is money. So it forces investors to look at the risk down the road to increase their investments up front. Of course, those investors may think, well, I'm not going to bear that risk. So I don't want to carry, you know, I'm going to be dead. So why should I pay for making this thing better for a future generation? And that's where governments need to come in and help and perhaps subsidize and adjust to make sure that those investments are made up front to the benefit of all. Okay, some of the language in the articles, the words like arcane, and so the no- whole notion that the economic model is just this—it's—it's it's an old thing, and we need to change it. What's the hardest part? And, I, and I'm even trying to think of the audience for this that convince them that they need to make these changes now. Is it this—the uncertainty associated with climate impacts? What, where are people maybe putting the most, you know, pushback on even making these changes? Well, as you've identified, there are multiple barriers. And one of them is just uh, not understanding uh, climate change. There's a recent study of the Fortune 100. Those are really big companies in terms of earnings as rated by the Fortune magazine. That group of companies, there was a survey conducted of the boards of directors for the Fortune 100 companies in 2019. The survey was conducted by NYU Stern Business School. And in the survey, they looked at the publicly available resumes of each of the 1,188 directors on those companies. And they were looking for environmental and climate backgrounds in those directors. They found that only five, not 5%, only five directors out of 1,188 had any background in climate. And only two people had any background in water. And water, as you know, and the audience knows, is critical to climate change. There's going to be, it's essentially a story of water. There's going to be either too little or too much, and the water's going to be in the wrong places. But these directors who currently oversee these huge corporations don't have the training or background in these issues. So when they're confronted, and this goes to other smaller companies, I think we'd see like findings. When they're confronted with these investments decisions, they may not understand why it's so important to value the future risks that we'll face in interpreting what is the benefit of this added resilience. So we are suffering from that. And then there's uncertainty. You know, there's Nothing that tells us on this date, at this time, a terrible rainstorm is going to hit us in 20 years. We just don't have that kind of downscale data. We don't even have downscale data for really uh, even more close in time events. So it is hard to judge, but we're pretty sure, though, and there is enough certainty that these structures will be hit as we continue to warm And the final thing is it's not widely appreciated. Everyone thinks that if we cut our emissions today, that will take care of it. We're sort of done with the climate problem. But because of the delayed effect of the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, it 
takes a while for the warming to occur, we will continue to warm for at least the next several decades, even if we are highly successful and get to zero emissions tomorrow. I'm guessing this is probably very relevant to what this article is trying to say is that the Federal Reserve kind of famously in the past year has slowly stepped out on the issue of climate change. And please correct me if I'm wrong, if how significant this might be, but there's obviously an army of economists at the Federal Reserve. Are you sensing any movement that they can be very influential into making sort of these cost benefit changes? Well, certainly our Office of Management and Budget, which sets the discount rate or sets this cost-benefit analysis for the federal government, could be extremely influential. And what we're seeing is we have an alphabet soup of federal agencies that are beginning to say, wait a minute, this climate risk thing is really big, and we are not adequately considering both of the risks, primary risks that are presented. The first is the transition to a clean economy. So there are going to be winners and losers uh, among industries as the world turns towards clean energy and really removing carbon from our economy, as well as these climate impacts, the droughts, the wildfires, the extreme heat events. And neither are particularly well accounted for, and especially the climate impacts are not accounted for. So you see the SEC announcing that they think perhaps additional regulations or guidance are necessary to help companies disclose and understand these risks. You see Janet Yellen, uh, head of Treasury, saying we need to do more on climate. You see the head of the Federal Reserve saying this could affect the financial system. The risks are so large. We need to examine this. So there is momentum. And this cost-benefit analysis is one small but pivotal and important piece at getting us to building more resiliently and getting us there quickly. If we adjusted that, we would have far better investment in resilience going forward. I know this is probably hard to track, but a lot of these decisions and where economists end up at banks and all over the place, you know, these economic schools at universities and such. And this kind of thinking is it making its way into those courses and how, you know, people learn the sort of the basics of economics. Have you heard uh, in that respect? I mean, I'm sure you're crossing paths with a lot of academics, but is it making its way into actually teaching that next generation of economists? Well, it's really a patchwork how much we're teaching about climate change. I'm don't follow particularly the field of economics and what's being taught on climate change. But generally, I'd say we're not doing such a great job of making sure we're educating a workforce that's informed in climate change. So, for example, if you're in the military, we have excellent middle military academies, service academies, they're called, that train both upcoming officers, as well as do continuing education for people in the armed forces. But in general, there's almost no required courses on climate change. It's an elective. Often it's just only a couple of hours. And unless you're in environmental engineering or some other area that would require you to focus on this, you may miss out on education on climate change. And Also, there's a similar story in many of our universities and colleges. A 2016 survey of the 90 best colleges and universities in the United States, according to the rankings of the U.S. News and World Report, 
found that a student in one of those schools had only a 17% chance of taking a single course on climate change as part of the core curricula. And I make it my practice to ask, I meet with, I have the great good fortune of meeting with many young people to ask them, have you ever had a class in college or university on climate change? And the answer was typically or is typically no. In fact, I had one young woman tell me this week, I not only had no education in college or law school, but when I was in elementary and she's in her mid-20s elementary school, my science teacher said that climate change wasn't happening. So we face a hurdle in making sure that we have a workforce that can address these issues. And given that the science is very clear that climate change is human caused and that it's occurring, virtually unanimous consensus among climate scientists, we need to amp up our education to make sure people understand what's at stake. So what's next? Where where are you taking this conversation? I mean, the article's out there, but what do you hope to see coming out of this? Well, this was an issue that was discussed in the Obama administration. The changes weren't made to the discount rate by the Office of Management and Budget. I'm hoping that it will be something that occurs and is a policy change going forward to make sure that the discount rate reflects that risk is is money. It's not just time, it's risk. And it remained to be seen, but certainly there are advocates inside and outside the government for that change, even though it sounds like such a technical and boring matter, but it actually will really affect outcomes if we can get this right. Yeah, I don't think people appreciate how the mundane things that make societies work. And the, these are those core things. And so we, that's why these battles need to be won. So, well, Alice, this is great. Fascinating. You're, you're putting out great material and we're going to keep having you on. But I, I want to thank you for coming on Simpatico. And thanks. Thanks again. Thank you. What a pleasure. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to both Susie Moser and Linda Shy for coming on the podcast. They've been on before, and it's always a treat to chat with them. I hope our conversation inspired you to go check out their article, which I have as a link in my show notes. This is important stuff. So much of what we do in the climate space seems so reactive, but these two have put together an ambitious, broad framework to think about how we need to transform this burgeoning field of climate adaptation to meet the challenges that lie ahead. I don't think for a minute they propose that they have all the answers, but what they are doing is, is trying to get us to think at the scale that is required. I'm sure they would love to hear from you if you have your own ideas to add to this conversation. If you're in the adaptation space, read and find out if there are ways to transform what you're doing. I think we'll see adaptation evolve significantly in the mid to long term, and all of us can help contribute to that evolution. And I'd like to thank Dr. Jesse Keenan for contributing some of the questions to this conversation with Linda and Susie. And thanks again to Judge Alice Hill for coming on the podcast and sharing some of her recent work. It's always a treat to chat with Alice, and she'll be back on again for sure. Okay, don't forget to subscribe to the America Daps newsletter. We highlight the latest episode and news and stories related to that episode's topic. We also highlight other climate podcasts and share a few other adaptation-related goodies. In the show notes, there is a link to subscribe. And here's a call to action. Encourage your friends and colleagues to subscribe to the newsletter.
Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring an episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. So for example, UCLA sponsored me to do several episodes around adaptation in California. At the time, I traveled on location to interview experts they wanted me to include as part of that episode. Usually those episodes have quite a few expert guests. So basically, they are sponsoring an entire episode to share their specific story. I've done this with various groups like WWF, Harvard, University of Florida, and other nonprofits. It's the chance to share your story with all my listeners. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a much longer shelf life than a white paper or conference presentation. You groups out there work this into your communication strategies. So I've been doing these remotely for the past year, but I have recently completed my vaccinations and I'm slowly getting into travel again, like many of you. Going on location provides many great opportunities to capture unusual conversations that can be part of an episode. Email me at americadabs at gmail.com to learn more. Before we wrap up here, I love hearing from you. I say this in every episode. Some of you reach out to me and say, I heard you say this, Doug. So take the time to email me just to say who you are. And if you're in the field, let me know what you're doing. Or if you're not in the field, how you get value out of the podcast. I truly love hearing from you and I respond to everyone. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. And don't forget to check out the website, americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.